back here in the book of Genesis, chapter 9. And so let's turn there. We're going to read the first seven verses. Now, last week we only touched upon the first verse, verse 1, and uh, today we're going to actually move a little further. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4. But we're going to read down through verse 7 here uh, in just a moment and then get right into our study. We've already prayed for God's blessing, so let's do that. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require, at the hand of every beast will I require it, and at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you, be ye fruitful, and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, and multiply therein. As we began our study last time in Genesis chapter 9, we laid out a very general outline of the whole of the chapter in regards to God's covenant with Noah and his sons and the three basic principles of of government that are dealt with here throughout this whole chapter. I mentioned them last week as public government, personal government, and prophetic government. Now we'll get into those issues beginning next time. But we then focused our attention in verse 1 on two major points. Those are the blessings of God to man and the mission and purpose of man. Now from these points, we move into the establishment and the development of government among man, beginning with verse 2. For we see here in verse 2 that God says to Noah and his sons, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea. Into your hand are they delivered. Now the new world that began with Adam and Eve established the supremacy of man upon the earth initially. As we remember back in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, that God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. And then it says, male and female created he them. I know that every time that I read this, I always make this statement. That is God's standard for our relationships. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. But notice this, he says to them, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So man's supremacy over the earth, that great mission of man to subdue the earth, no longer exists as the Lord intended. And not in a perfect, absolute sense. 
Notice that our text in chapter 9 does not mention that man is to subdue the earth. Notice that in verse 1, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, period. No mention of subduing. And so you see that things have changed. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, his telling them to subdue the earth at that time meant that man was to rule over and master the earth. Man was to rule, uh, to look after and care for the earth. Man was to investigate and to research and to discover the earth's resources. Man was also to develop and use the earth's resources. And man was to manage and supervise the earth with all of its provision and resources. But when man sinned, at a, uh, well, man's ability to subdue the earth was greatly marred. And it certainly was weakened. Sin corrupted man and weakened his ability to manage the earth. And since the fall of man into sin, the earth and man are in a rage of violence and suffering. I think you would all agree with me that the world as a whole is, is a dangerous and perilous place to live. But it isn't just because man is violent, but all of nature is violent as well. Nature is running wild with natural disaster after natural disaster, hurricanes and typhoons and cyclones and tornadoes and floods and volcanic eruptions and earthquakes, dangerous lightning, violent storms, locust plagues, famines, and on and on it goes. But what about man? Well, man runs wild also. Man runs wild with violent act after violent act. Child abuse, and wife abuse, husband abuse, parent abuse, rape, assaults, maiming, murder, war, robbery, cheating, stealing, lying, assassination, terrorist acts, arson, and on and on it goes. And then think that the earth is, is full of disease and pestilence and all sorts of accidents. We have so many people boasting today. You know, we have, at this point in time, in the 21st century, we are so highly technological. Our medical advances, you know, if, if, we, if we really put them into, into use without worrying about the cost of it all and, and whatnot, would probably end a lot of suffering in the world today. But I suppose money plays a big factor in that, doesn't it? And yet the earth is still as full of disease. We're so highly technological, and yet there are people still starving in our country today. Much less in every other country in the world. And then we have such a, you know, such a, a way of knowing things happening at the, at the very moment that they happen. I, I was mentioning to the other services, you know, that uh, in, in times past, those of you who remember the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, folks, that's not ancient history, by the way. Well, we might be ancient who lived through them, but, but, you know, in those days, you know, things were much simpler. You know, we had three stations on TV. We read the, 
El Paso Times in the morning and the El Paso Herald Post in the afternoon. And, and every time we did, the news was only about two and a half days late. Getting to us. We were reading old news. And then came the greatest invention of all, TV trays. And we moved from the table to, to in front of the TV to watch the news because we needed to know what was going on in the world and the news was only about a half a day late now. But today we, we get the news immediately. I was, I was so sad when I, when I heard about that uh, helicopter yesterday that it carried all of those troops that, that were killed. It pained me to see that. But it was breaking news. You know, breaking news for us back in the 60s was when President Kennedy was assassinated. Most of us, many of us were in school. Some of you weren't even around. But we would find out only hours, hours, hours after this thing happened. And then when, you know, when the news broke, what, you know, everybody remembers Walter Cronkite, you know, being on TV and, you know. But today it's, it's instant. It's just constant. You know, we have hundreds of TV stations and most of them are news stations and we're always watching to know what's going on. But what can we do about it? What can we do about these things? You see, the earth is full of these things, diseases and pestilence and all sorts of accidents happen. All causing suffering and destroying life in huge sections of the earth and its resources. And the point is this, that the earth, that is its nature, the nature of the earth is far from being under the control of man. We were supposed to have dominion and to subdue all these things. We have no control at all. It used to be that way when God first created man, but now, not since man's rebellion against God, not since man's terrible fall into sin, we have no control. Sin has marred and has weakened man's rule and supremacy over the earth. Man no longer rules supremely over the earth. And by the way, only God can gain supremacy over the earth. Since the introduction of sin, only God can. Only the Lord can conquer the sin and corruption of the earth and restore perfection to the earth. And only He can regain and restore the supremacy of a perfect earth to man. Only God. That's why we need to trust Him. Because we have no handle on these situations. And we barely have a handle on the ones that we can control. I I think of the progression of of a thought that goes through the book of Hebrews into the book of 2 Peter. If you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 2 for just a moment. And in verses 5 through 9, Paul says, For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world... Uh, Let me say that again. For unto the angels has he... Hath he not put in subjection the world to come wherever we speak? In other words, he hasn't put the earth under the subjection of the angels. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? We read this this morning from the book of uh, Psalm, Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with, with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Well, we don't have the whole control. We don't have the full supremacy as God had intended originally. But notice the next verse. But we see Jesus. 
We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus came to show us that he was in control. And he needed to be in control of all things so that he could do what he did for us. To die on a cross, to shed his blood for our forgiveness. But you carry that thought from understanding that we don't have all things under our subjection. Yet in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, Peter reminds us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God has a plan to restore all things. And he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? He's speaking to the church, and he's saying, listen, if all of these things are going to come to pass, then how are you then living until that day comes? So we need to be under the subjection of the Holy Spirit and under the subjection of the Word of God and under the subjection of Christ. But then he goes on and he says, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Because you see, this will all be gone. And, the, and, and what he had wanted to do in the first place was restore it all to the original intention of that perfect world. Of that perfect man in the image of God and in the image of Christ. Now there is still a dominion that man has over the animals of the world. But the fall of man into sin has radically altered the relationship between animal and man. You know when God created Adam and Eve he gave them dominion over the animals. It was a beautiful thing to see God say to Adam name all the animals. Go out and name them all. That was part of his dominion. That was, you know, in a sense it was saying to him, go get to know these animals. I created them for you. And I created them so that you would take care of them. So you named them. And, and, and so he did. But you see, he gave them that dominion. And dominion, by the way, means to rule over. It means to master. It means to control. It means to manage. But to do so by looking after and caring for. That's part of dominion. To look after and to care for that which you rule over and that which you master. I hope and pray that our homes and families are ruled, in a sense, by those of you fathers and husbands. Not ruled as a tyrant, but ruled as one who loves to to care for and to look after your families. Do you understand the principle here? Okay, so... Before the fall, there was apparently no savagery among animals. Neither man nor animal ate other animals at that time. We are told in verse 30 of Genesis chapter 1, And to every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air, and to every living, uh, to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. Every, every person and every animal were vegetarians. Everyone was a vegetarian. Now you have to understand something about that because, you know, in in the sense of what God had created with the canopy around the earth 
And, and the perfect conditions that there were on the earth and in the land mass and, and shapes that there were at that time and the vegetation that was there, more than likely, I would have to say with, with great confidence, but more than likely, all of those herbs and all of those uh, <coughs> uh, plants and all of the, the fruits and whatever else, vegetables and all that would come out of all of these things were probably highly and super nutritious. That they could live under this particular canopy for nearly a thousand years. Methuselah, 969 years. It's a long lifespan, isn't it? So Man and animal live side by side in peace and in harmony. We have no indication otherwise in Scripture at that particular time before the flood. So man and animal animal live side by side in that peace and harmony and apparently with some affection for each other. But man was the ruler, the dominating force, the leader among all the creatures of the earth. And yet with a responsibility to affectionately care for them as God's representative on earth. But take note. Take note of what has happened since the fall and the corruption of man. What do we find today? Animals living in a world of savagery, having to struggle for food and fight for survival among other animals. And not only this, but because of the relationship between man and animals being tragically corrupted, Man would probably have been devoured and done away with long ago by the animal world, if not for one thing. In the new world, God put an instinctive fear of man within animals. Folks, if God hadn't have done that, what would we have today? The rise of the planet of the apes. (laughs) Weird, isn't it? The way man thinks. God put a fear in man. I should say God put a fear of man in animals. Because there is a natural instinct within animals to shrink and to draw back from man. Man's dominion and supremacy over the animal world may, may continue in the new world after the flood. But they are based on new terms. Fear and terror. Not harmony and affection. Matthew Henry put it this way. He said, The horse and the ox patiently submit to the bridle and yoke, and the sheep is dumb both before the shearer and before the butcher, for the fear and dread of man are upon them. Those creatures that are in any way hurtful to us are restrained, though now and then man may be hurt by some of them. They do not combine together to rise up in rebellion against man. What is, or I should say, what is it that keeps wolves out of our towns and lions out of our streets and confines them to the wilderness but this fear and dread? Now, I know that a few months ago we had that news report of the mountain lion that came down. You know, we had had that great drought here in El Paso for such a long time. And this mountain lion came down because he wanted to go eat at H&H Car Wash. And uh, end, ended up inside the gates. You know, they put down those, those heavy metal gates uh, down, and he was inside there. And, of course, they had to put him away. But, uh, you know, it was only one. It wasn't all of them. He was reacting to the fact that he was thirsty and hungry, probably. 
But yet there is that fear of man. They wouldn't do that otherwise. More and more, you know, animals uh, today, you know, we would think, you know, we, we, we see how domesticated some of them may be. But I've still seen a little chihuahua dog bite the heck out of somebody's leg. Uh, a horse, a beautiful horse. And I think horses are beautiful animals. When, when, when treated properly and broken properly and all, they, they become very helpful and useful. But do you think that those hooves at any given time, if an animal becomes, such as a horse, becomes upset and and threatened, that he's not going to knock somebody out with those hooves, those legs? They're much more powerful than we are, aren't they? We've seen those pictures of those Indian elephants that, uh, you know, that walk around freely sometimes in India. And they, you know, they go on a rampage and they run over people and, uh, you know, it doesn't feel too good. Some people die. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? But the scriptures remind us that a new day is coming when the original harmony and affection between animals and man will be restored. I mean, think about Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, as, as, as he's pointing to that time where, where Jesus is going to rule even on this earth for a thousand years. And, the, and, and that particular millennial uh, time period is, is going to cause us to see these things happen. Like in verse 6, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The children will be playing among the animals without any worry or care. Why? Because they're not going to be against each other anymore. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, which is a poisonous snake, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That promise is given to us in Isaiah 65 as well. In verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. And even in the prophecy of Hosea, Hosea chapter 2, verse 18, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, and with the fowls of heaven, and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and will make them to lie down safely. How things have changed, and how things will change. How things have changed, And how things will change. But there is another solid reason that the Lord put this fear and dread of man in the animal kingdom. Think about what's going to happen now. As we see in verse 3 of our text in Genesis 9. God says to them, every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things. Man was now given the right to eat the flesh of animals. When man fell into sin and when the earth suffered the devastation of the flood, the environment and the vegetation of the earth apparently suffered terribly. Think about it in these terms. The ability of the environment to provide the very best atmosphere and nutrients for man's strength and life was apparently weakened because of the flood. Man would no longer live as long as he had before the flood. Sin and the flood drastically altered man's environment, food supply, strength, and lifespan. We know that after the flood, the, uh, geo- the, uh, 
the geology and the topography and the geography of, of the earth changed drastically. It went from a very protected environment to one in which now there are high places and high peaks and low places and low uh, valleys and, and, and deserts. And uh, even though you have uh, forests, you also have jungles and, 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 and just barren and desolate places as well as very populated places. Everything changed. But so did the environment the earth could no longer have the environment nor produce the nutrients, the quality of food that it once had. And then the ability of the earth to produce an overabundance of food was bound to have also been limited. Everything changed now because now there was summer, uh, winter, spring, fall. There were times where things didn't grow and other things did. We remember that when Noah came off of the ark... What he saw was devastation, not so much the beauty that he had seen when he left. Everything changed. The earth was no longer perfect. There was a limit to what the earth would now produce and supply. In addition to its limited supply capabilities, the earth would now suffer natural disasters that would destroy vegetation and food supplies. Natural disasters such as flooding, storms, famines, heat waves, dry spells, and a host of other disorders within nature. And more than likely, this was the reason that the Lord enlarged man's food supply to include animals. As we've seen, man has been or had been exclusively vegetarian when first created. But now, perhaps, for the reasons I've mentioned or for other reasons, God allowed man to eat the flesh of all animals that live and move. Animals such as fish and bird and cattle and even pigs. Yes, even pigs. Pork. Bacon. I, I mention that because, of course, later on in history, a distinction would be made between clean and unclean animals for religious and ceremonial purposes, especially among, among the Jews. But at this time, he said, all that live and move will be food for you. All. Now, I do know that back when the animals came to the ark, you know, because when, when God commanded uh, Noah to take the animals into the ark, they came to Noah, and God told them to make a distinction between the unclean animals and the numbers that would go in, two by twos, and then the clean animals that would go in by pairs of sevens, because the clean animals were going to represent those animals that could also be sacrificed. And that's exactly what Noah did when, they, when, when the ark finally landed and they disembarked. But Noah built the altar and he began to sacrifice of all the clean animals. Sacrifice was important. It was a type of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. So that was an important thing there. But in this new world now, for the purpose of food, man was given the right to use whatever animal he needed for food. And you know, it's interesting to me that in the latter days, the last days as we call the times even in which we live now, that the allowance that the Lord gave to man comes into question. That allowance for, for eating meat, it actually comes into question even today. I'm not talking just about, you know, the groups like PETA, you know, that uh, protest the killing of animals and all of that. 
They'll protest the killing of animals, but they won't think twice about, you know, they won't even protest, uh, you know, the, the number of babies that have been aborted. That's, that's the thinking of man, see. So that, that's, that's skewed thinking. But Paul said something interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we need to see. He said in verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Right there it tells us who's trying to dictate all of these quote-unquote policies now as to how man is supposed to live. Think about that. That in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, and notice some of the things that they say shouldn't happen. Oh, listen, forbidding to marry and commanding, it says, commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. That's a mouthful there in verse 3. You know, we can apply forbidding to marry to the number of groups and religions that say today that, you know, if you really want to be, uh, you know, a priest or some kind of a, of a holy man or some kind of a spiritual person, you know, you have to forbid uh, marriage, you know. God never forbid marriage. God never commanded celibacy. Paul does mention that if someone chooses to do that before God as God has led them, that's, that's another thing. But it wasn't a command. Along with that, there's no command then to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So now we see where the battle lies between those who today have, have, have departed from the faith and, and, and chosen the religion of man over relationship with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. But we which believe and know the truth, we have no problems with what God has given us. Because in verse 4 it says, For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the Word of God and prayer. And while man was given the right to continue to eat whatever vegetarian he desired, and other, uh, whatever vegetation he desired, in other words, he could have, you know, his, his, his meat and, and, and go to the salad bar too. It's okay. And if you wanted just salad, you can eat that, just eat that too. And if you want just meat, you can eat that too. But the point of the matter is, he says, there's only one exception though. Very important exception I want to give you. He says, man was not to eat an animal with its life, its blood, still in it. Live animals are not to be eaten, or dead animals with its uh, blood still in them. Uh, We could consider some basic reasons for this restriction, of course. Preventing disease, preventing savagery and cruelty to animals, teaching a connection between life and the blood, and most importantly... Reminding man of the blood of the atonement, the blood of the sacrifice that is necessary for man to be accepted by God. I mean, that's a good reason for us to teach that. I mean, this was definitely one of the reasons why God gave this instruction. Because this is clearly seen by the reference to the life of an animal or the animal being in the blood. The life being in the blood. 
Life is in our blood, folks, flowing through us. The heart continues to pump the blood to go through the whole body, bringing the nutrients that the body needs to every part of the body. We know this biology. It's clear the heart stops pumping, a person dies, the blood does not flow anymore. In essence, the life that was in the blood no longer moves. No longer does its its work. It's also in this verse that we see the first indication in scriptures of the nature of the blood. The nature of the blood and the foreshadowing of the atonement. We know that blood was shed when Adam and Eve were given garments of skins. But now God gives the revelation which will be more fully expressed by the law. You see, it was only implication with Adam and Eve. We were told they were given skins. The implication was something had to die for the skins to be given. But now God gives that revelation, which is going to be more fully expressed when the law comes. And when the law comes, like it says in Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. That is why the Lord put these instructions into the offerings and the sacrifices of the Jewish people when he he began to establish the law among them. But here's something I want you to think about and ponder. And I want you to think about it because of this reason. I've oftentimes said most Christians pray at least three times a day. Breakfast, lunch, supper. Right? Unfortunately, that's the way it is. We pray three times a day at least. And usually just over our meals. I wish it was more. I wish we prayed more. But I bring this up because of this. We pray, we give thanks to God. Why? Well, thank you for this meal, Lord. But have we realized why that meal is in front of us to begin with? And what it all might represent for us? We're going to come to the table of communion in just a few moments. Now, every time we do this, we have a little piece of bread in the cup of juice, representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, respectively. The idea for that is so that we might remember what it was that Jesus Christ came to do for us. To take upon himself as the pure Lamb of God our sins. And it was then by his blood that was shed on Calvary for the forgiveness of our sins. And we remember that. But I believe that God wants us to remember that all the time. Even in the meals that we partake of. The meal that you're going to have today. Think about that for just a moment. So here it is. Here's something that I want you to think about and ponder very seriously. Listen carefully. The sacredness of life taught here. About the life being in the blood. The sacredness of life taught here is certainly not to be carried out to the satanic extreme of Hinduism. What is that extreme? The people are starving to death in India 
But the animals get to roam around free. Why? Because if you kill that animal, you might be killing your tia from about, you know, three generations ago. They believe in reincarnation. So understand that the sacredness of life taught here is not is certainly not to be carried out to that satanic extreme of Hinduism. For God wants man. Listen, I want you to think about this thought. For God wants man to see death in animals and to live by feeding upon death as a constant reminder that we live and we move and we have our being through Jesus Christ's death. Think about it. Just ponder that. Now, one reason we pray in giving thanks to the Lord for the food that we eat is to remind us of the blood that was poured out to provide life for us. That is the nourishment that we might live and not die from starvation. And this points us, of course, toward Jesus Christ who died for us, shed his blood, that we might live forever, safe and secure from sin and from death. Think about it. Ponder it. When you sit at meal today, after this service. It could be a burrito in the cafe. Think about it. Don't overthink it. Just think about it. And then enjoy what God has given you. The point is never forget what Jesus Christ has done. You see, in in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, and I'll read that passage in just a moment as we come to the table, but in Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the New Testament, as he's blessing it and and, and offering this cup before the people, before his disciples, before he goes to the cross. He gives thanks and he says, For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I've had that word remission underlined because I want you to understand that remission means forgiveness. To remit is to forgive. It's a word, that a term used in, in, in monetary issues and financial issues and, and business issues, but it just means forget. You're forgiven. The debt is paid. And you're covered. We use that term today for cancer. A person's cancer could be in remission. To some extent, it's just been forgiven and sober at that moment for a time. So it's an important word. This is what the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for, to forgive us. And then in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified By his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So not only are we uh, forgiven, but we are now justified. The things that Jesus Christ did for us have been put onto our account. As if we had never sinned. Because we believe that Jesus did that for us on the cross. Died for us, shed his blood for us, and eventually would rise again from the dead. We're now justified by His blood. We're not justified by the works that we do. We're not justified by by the works of the flesh. 
We're not justified by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He has saved us. Paul said that to Titus. So we're, we're forgiven, we're justified. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. We, we have been redeemed. Redemption through His blood. What does it mean to be redeemed but that we are bought back by God with a price? The price being the blood of Jesus Christ. Redemption. How how can we best understand redemption? Yeah, I'm old school, so I I, I would say, you know, I I remember the old redemption stores that, you know, the green stamps had and the gold bond places. How many of you remember gold bond stamps and green stamps and stuff? I know I've done this probably before too many times. Just consider it just old timer's disease here. So anyway, but, you know, I I think about these things because you could take, you know, you could go to the store and you get all these stamps, you know, and then they would give you a book and you put all the stamps, lick all those stamps in there. And if you had a whole book of stamps... You could take it to a redemption store and you could give them the one book and with one book or two books or ten books or twenty books, whatever, you had a catalog and it was, uh, you know, if you wanted to buy this one particular thing, you would give them the books, you know, the number of books and then they'd give you that. That's redeeming. You were redeeming something. You paid for it really at at the grocery store, but then, you know, you can, and whatnot. But that's it, see? Redemption, buying back, getting something back for what has been paid. And and Paul says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then Paul, in in Hebrews 9, verses 12 through 14, speaking of the blood of bulls and goats and goats and calves and all of those, he says, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. Not many times, not every week, once. And once only. He entered into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption. Not only are we redeemed, but we are eternally redeemed. In other words, if we have been redeemed, then we are redeemed forever. That's a tremendous gift that God gives through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Not only are we redeemed and and, and forgiven and justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are also purged. You know, there's a cleansing that takes place. And sometimes our conscience, even as believers today, our consciences need to be cleansed from dead works. I believe that one problem in the, in the church of Jesus Christ today is there's just a lot of people, you know, depending on dead works or doing dead works. Listen, we are a living, breathing entity. We are the church. You know, I hope that you didn't come here to come to church. I hope you came here to be the church. Because the church is the people who believe in Jesus Christ. That's the church. It's not a building. It's not an institution. It is the people of God. You're the church. And I hope that every time you come, you come to be the church, not just come to church. So, we come to do living works, not dead works. Because you see... Coming is one thing, but we go back out. 
And we go back out as believers. We go back out as Christians. We go back out with a commission. The commission to make disciples of all nations. Bringing them to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are called to give testimony of Christ's love and life in us. Those are living works, not dead works. So don't linger on dead works. Realize that the blood of Christ has purged us and purged our consciences from dead works. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Peter says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is not to be taken for granted. The blood of Christ is more precious than gold and silver. It is more precious than anything that is material in this life. Whatever the world considers to be most valuable, the precious blood of Christ is hundreds, thousands of times more valuable than what the world thinks. Because it says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then John says in 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he died putting every one of your sins, past, present, and future, on that cross. But let me give you a warning. I gave this warning on Wednesday night. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. But if you think that he died on, your, on the cross, and you say, well, if he died for all of my sins, past, present, and future, then let me go out and, and commit them anyway. Then you don't understand redemption, and you don't understand the blood of Jesus Christ. And you may not be saved. What you need to do is you need to confess your sins. Because just a few verses after this, two verses, John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What's the purpose of cleansing us from all unrighteousness? So that we don't commit unrighteousness anymore. We live now with a different perspective with a different cause we live for the cause of christ let's not be the same as we once were we are to be different lastly revelation 1 verse 5 and from jesus christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood he has cleansed us from sins he has washed us we are to be clean of those things that at one time kept us in death, the death of a life without Christ. But if you are in Christ today, you're alive, you're living, and it's because of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the reason why what we're going to study today and and next time, dealing with those other issues in verses 5 through 7, are going to be so important because blood is important to us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Christ shed his blood, therefore there is forgiveness. But you must come to him. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
I do not believe in a bloodless cross. There are a lot of people who want, uh, who want Jesus without his blood. Can't have it that way. We need to understand why Jesus shed his blood for us. Today we're going to take hold of this cup and the piece of bread. We're going to remember what Jesus did for us. There is no bloodless cross. Let's remember that.